Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles, and you're listening to the final episode of FT Startup Stories. All good things must come to an end, and this episode is about just that, the exit, entrepreneur jargon for selling up to cash in on all your hard work. For Paul Collins, the experience proved traumatic. I met him at his office behind the Bank of England in the City of London, where he told me what happened. So Equitech is an M&A advisory firm. We typically advise consulting firms. Why that particular niche? I spent 20 years of my life building a consulting business, which I then exited from myself. Got very frustrated along the way building that and ultimately got very bad advice on exit. So I thought there was a a hole in the marketplace to provide that type of service. And one of the reasons we've stuck with the domain area that represents my background and and many of the colleagues who've joined me is because we truly believe that you need to understand the firm you're selling or helping growing rather than feeling that one day you can advise a retail business, the next day a manufacturer, the next day an engineering company. But it's also that maybe there are a lot of businesses in this area that don't prepare or or maybe aren't aware of what they need to do to get as successful an exit as they want? Yeah, I think it's probably fair to say that as most consulting firm owners and their staff are very bright people, they're experts at their own domain expertise in advising other businesses. They're not necessarily experts in running their own business or exiting from that business. But because they're bright guys, they think they know it all. And so there was definitely in the early stages of Equitech a need to educate the market that just because you know how to advise your clients doesn't necessarily mean that you're good at running your own business or indeed know anything at all about exiting from that business at some point in the future. That sort of brings us on, I think, to your moment of exit. Can you explain how you'd got to that situation? I mean, I got about, say, 10 years into running my business. And up until that point, we were good at what we did. And clients paid us money for doing that. It was very enjoyable. You know, we had good income. But we really weren't building anything of any great value for the future. And you get to a certain point in your life where you say, well, am I going to be doing this for the rest of my life? Or at some stage, do I need to stop? My business partner, who joined me about two or three years into that journey, was 15 years older than me, so he decided it was about time he went off to the beach. I wasn't ready for that, being somewhat younger, but you know the pressure was on from him. And I spent about six months traipsing the streets of London, talking to anyone who would talk to me about whether there was value in my firm, and concluded at that point in time there really wasn't any value. So if we were to ever exit from it and realise some money for the business, then we had to do something. So in '95 we put a plan together to build value over the next five years, and we felt it would take that to do it. In hindsight, 
we probably could have done it a lot quicker because one of the messages I'd received in 95 was that the business wasn't big enough to sell. What I now know in Equitech, having run an M&A business in this sector for quite some years now, yeah. is that it isn't just about size, it's about how the business is put together. Um, so you can sell very small businesses in this sector. And we were, at the time, were about five or six million in sales. We eventually got to 50 60 million in sales wow. over a relatively short period of time. But, you know, with hindsight, it was a lot of a slog to get to that size, and we didn't need to do that. You had this five-year yeah. target. Yeah. What did you do then to enable that rapid growth? I can't remember who told me this, but it was to distinguish between working in the business from working on the business. And, you know, a few pennies started to drop because I started the business because I'd built up a certain knowledge base right from working for companies like IBM and things like that and I sold that knowledge base to our client base right and you get good at delivering it then you get you know you get good at selling it to clients but at some stage you've got to get to the point where you get good at running your own business and that was a clear change in the mid-90s but we also put a plan together that was largely based on the discussions that we'd had about what a buyer would value in a service business. And we created something we now call in Equitech our eight levers of equity value, which were things like, you know, have you got a decent proposition that the client wants to buy? Do you have great client relationships? Do you have a strong management team? These sound all very obvious things, right? But when you're down in the weeds delivering to clients, sometimes you you forget about those things. So we put a plan together that was going to build value in the firm as well as grow it over a period of time. And it was a very successful plan. So you got to this big scale and then came this exit point. What happened then? We went out to the market to find advisors to help us do that. At the time, my role was keeping the business going and my partner ran the process of finding advisors and helping us get to that exit point. In hindsight, I probably should have put more effort into it myself. There was a somewhat conflict of, uh, of interest there, if you like, mm. uh, which wasn't obvious to me at the time, which should have been. In that, you know, he was going to disappear off to the beach, mm. so I probably wasn't too bothered about what was left behind. I was the guy who was going to have to go on for the next X years and, uh, and keep the business going. So we eventually appointed advisors, who frankly did a really lousy job at taking us to market. And what was the problem? They sold us a great story on how they could help us find buyers for the business. And uh, after probably about six months or so of going through that, we didn't have a buyer and we hadn't been presented very well. So we ended up writing all the documentation ourselves to present the business. I ended up finding the buyer, who ultimately ended up being a private equity firm who invested in the, uh, the company. And it wasn't a very pleasant experience. We ended up feeling that we'd done all the work and the advisor hadn't really done much to help us. And what about the final sort of deal? How did that pan out? I think it's fair to say that we ended up saddling ourselves with a lot of problems. We originally had planned that we were going to sell the business to probably another consulting firm. Those of you old enough to remember, back in 2000, the capital markets were a bit awry. There was a lot of turbulence and... For whatever reason, we didn't manage to find a trade buyer who was interested in acquiring at the time. So we started to look at the world of private equity. I knew very little about that world at the time. I suspect my business partner knew very little as well. Our advisor almost disappeared the day that we got interest from the private equity company. So wasn't really involved in any of the negotiations. And I found myself the night before we were going to do a deal with this private equity company, reading the document 
for possibly the first time and found out that there were 40 clauses in the, actually 44 clauses in the document that meant if I sneezed I could lose control of my own business, that I was actually only selling about a third to private equity and went through with a red pen crossing out 40 of the 44 clauses. What did uh, you do? Well, I, I went into the deal meeting, which was full of lawyers and accountants, where everybody was ready to sign on the dotted line, except me, as it turned out. Right? We said that I'm not signing until we get rid of 40 of the 44 clauses, which we spent the rest of the day negotiating, but ended up getting rid of 40 of the 44 clauses. So it was a, a great result from that point of view, but the deal wasn't smart, with the benefit now of another... 15 years of hindsight and with now dealing with the private equity company day in day out as Equitech I know what a good deal looks like and, and frankly my old firm didn't sign up to a good deal. So uh, what were these other problems? There was a huge amount of debt that had been used in the deal and back then as I found out subsequently that was fairly typical of that community right that they would use borrowings that effectively your own business had to then pay back down over the next five or ten years to pay for your shares. And it can work extremely well for all parties if your business continues to grow at quite a rate and you can afford to fund the debt, pay down the interest, pay down the capital, and then everything can work fine. And in fact, as Equitech, we've done deals like that in recent times, not with anywhere near the same amount of debt in there, but it can work. But in our case, I think something like 90% of the money that was used to buy my shares was debt. And that's not too smart, right? What did that then mean? For you, the good thing about the deal was that some of the existing shareholders got to put some money in the bank. So, if you like, from one lens, it looks great in that you know senior shareholders can put some money away, and we actually had about a hundred shareholders at the time. So, lots of people actually benefited from that sale. The difficulty is that you've then got another five years to pay down the money that has flowed through the business out to shareholders. So, what did that mean personally for you? That sounds like an incredibly stressful, difficult. Yeah, it was. And, you know, two years into that situation, I decided I couldn't hack it any longer and actually left my own business. What personally was going on there? Probably one of the worst days of my life. You know, I'd spent 17 years building a business from scratch. When I left it, it had 350 people in it. We were turning over about $100 million, right? So, you know, it was a successful business. But, you know, to find yourself at odds with people in the business who weren't there from scratch, who now had a position of power, was very uncomfortable. You often hear this as sort of private equity. seems very nice to begin with. That's great if everything's going up. But when things get more difficult... It's very difficult. When you're the founder, owner of the business, and you get somebody else coming in who's got a viewpoint on how your business should be run, it can be quite difficult. It was interesting, after I left, and I actually didn't speak to them for quite some time, there was a point about two years later where I got the phone call from the private equity company which said, well, we think we might have been right about some things, we're not sure we were right about others, could you come and help us fix the problem? And uh, by then I'd set up Equitech. And so I had some more resources other than just me to help do that. And Equitech came in to actually help, you know, solve some of the problems. So, you know, we turned the business around and ultimately private equity got a decent exit from that business and people got the remainder of their money out. So the story was great eventually, but it was a very painful journey that took probably five years longer than it should have done. 
Professor Thomas Hellman is the Academic Director of the Entrepreneurship Centre at Oxford University's Said Business School. I travelled out to Oxford to hear his advice on finishing well in an entrepreneurial journey. I guess I've got sort of three pieces of advice, but I didn't come up with them. Great people before me figured this out um, a long time ago, starting with Apollo's Temple in Delphi that says, Know thyself. Just be very honest about what you're good at and be honest about your preferences. There are some founders who are worried that it would look bad if they gave up their company. Nothing wrong with it. Just be honest. You're tired. You're done. You want to give it up to somebody else. Nothing wrong with that. Look at your strengths. Look at your weaknesses. Second one, Bob Dylan. Times are changing. Don't think the world is static. I mean, you know, there's change. There's change in the business place. I mean, we've got globalization. We've got digitization. These are things that some founders just, you know, say, this is not for me. I've, I've lived in the old world, I understood the old world, but this new world isn't right for me, so that may be a good time to exit. And also acknowledge what's happening inside. Be aware that there are dynamics here. So if you keep holding on, you might effectively ruin your company by not allowing the next generation. Now, this could be the next generation in your family, or it could be that you've got a couple of key managers but you really have to think about their career path. And if you hold on too long, is this really the right thing? And then number three, we've got our Robert Baden-Powell, founder of the Scouts. And he always told us, be prepared. And so I think it's really important for founders to prepare. Because you need to convince a buyer that this is worth buying. And so there's a lot of things that you have to do to plan the exit. And it sometimes starts from the mundane. You've got to have sort of clean books. You've got to have a clean corporate structure. Nobody wants to buy a company that turns out to have hidden liabilities or hidden problems. But then you also sort of have to groom the one who's going to take over. That'd be grooming the next generation of managers. And you might take years to, you know, train them up, um, groom your own family to prepare them for taking over, or groom the acquirers. So you have to really plan this, and it tends to be a multi-year horizon that you've got to take to, to sell a company, especially if you're in a niche that's smaller, that's not well understood. If you're in a high-tech business that sort of is incredibly hot, then acquisitions can happen sometimes in a matter of months. But for most, it's really a process that you have to prepare for. But back to Paul Collins. I asked him whether he had ever pursued the dream of ending up on a desert island sipping cocktails and having bought a couple of flashy sports cars. I probably got into it with that thought in mind, and I went through that phase, right? So I've had the Ferraris and the, you know, the holidays and all the rest of it. And actually, for me, that's not what drives me now. So you know, many people say to me now, well, you know, you've sold a very big business, right? You must have done very well financially out of that. Yes, I did. I tried to retire. I managed it for three months, and I got bored out of my brain. So I do this now because I really enjoy it. My experience has been, I would say. 80-90% of the time that people don't retire and go off to the beach. They carry on to the next part of the journey. We've come to the end of this series, but the good news is we'll be back early next year with another series. In the meantime, if you have any questions, do please email me, jonathan.moles at ft.com. Goodbye. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. 
the nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.